Chapter Sixteen of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Sixteen, in which a princess leaves a dark tower, and a provision merchant returns to his family. The three days of storm ended in the night, and with the wild weather there departed from the Creeves something which had weighed on Dixon's spirits since he first saw the place. Monday only a week from the morning when he had conceived his plan of holiday, saw the return of the sun and the bland airs of spring. Beyond the blue of the yet restless waters rose dim mountains tipped with snow, like some Mediterranean seascape. Nesting birds were busy on the laver banks and in the hunting-tower thickets. The village smoked peacefully to the clear skies. Even the house looked cheerful, if dishevelled. The Garpledean was a garden of swaying larches, linnets, and wild anemones. Assuredly, thought Dixon, there had come a mighty change in the countryside, and he meditated a future discourse to the literary society of the Guthrie Memorial Kirk on natural beauty in relation to the mind of man. It remains for the chronicler to gather up the loose ends of his tale. There was no newspaper story with bold headlines of this, the most recent assault on the shores of Britain. Alexis Nikolaevich, once a prince of Muscovy, and now Mr. Alexander Nicholson, of the rising firm of Sprott and Nicholson of Melbourne, had interest enough to prevent it. For it was clear that if Saskia was to be saved from persecution, her enemies must disappear without trace from the world, and no story be told of the wild venture which was their undoing. The constabulary of Carrick and Scotland Yard were indisposed to ask questions, under a hint from their superiors the more so as no serious damage had been done to the persons of His Majesty's lieges, and no lives had been lost except by the violence of nature. The Procurator Fiscal investigated the case of the drowned men, and reported that so many foreign sailors, names and origins unknown, had perished in attempting to return to their ship at the Garpel Foot. The Danish brig had vanished into the mist of the northern seas. But one signal calamity the Procurator Fiscal had to record. The body of Loudon, the factor, was found on the Monday morning below the cliffs, his neck broken by a fall. In the darkness and confusion he must have tried to escape in that direction, and he had chosen an impracticable road, or had slipped on the edge. It was returned as death by misadventure, and the Carrick Herald and the Ochadlochan Advertiser excelled themselves in eulogy. Mr. Loudon, they said, had been widely known in the south-west of Scotland as an able and trusted lawyer, an assiduous public servant, and not least as a good sportsman. It was the last trait which had led to his death, for in his enthusiasm for wild nature he had been studying bird-life on the cliffs of the Creeves during the storm, and had made that fatal slip which had deprived the Shah of a wise counsellor and the best of good fellows. The tinklers of the Garplefoot took themselves off, and where they may now be pursuing their devious courses is unknown to the chronicler. Dobson, too, disappeared, for he was not among the dead from the boats. He knew the neighbourhood, and probably made his way to some port from which he took passage to one or other of those foreign lands which have formerly been honoured by his patronage. Nor did all the Russians perish. Three were found skulking next morning in the woods, starving and ignorant of any tongue but their own and five more came ashore much battered but alive. Alexis took charge of the eight survivors, and arranged to pay their passage to one of the British dominions, 
and to give them a start in a new life. They were broken creatures, with the dazed look of lost animals, and four of them had been peasants on Saskia's estates. Alexis spoke to them in their own language. "'In my grandfather's time,' he said, "'you were serfs. Then there came a change, and for some time you were free men. Now you have slipped back into being slaves again, the worst of slaveries, for you have been the serfs of fools and scoundrels, and the black passion of your own hearts. I give you a chance of becoming free men once more. You have the task before you of working out your own salvation. Go, and God be with you. Before we take leave of these companions of a single week, I would present them to you again as they appeared on a certain sunny afternoon when the episode of Hunting Tower was on the eve of closing. First we see Saskia and Alexis walking on the timey sward of the cliff-top, looking out to the fretted blue of the sea. It is a fitting place for lovers, above all for lovers who have turned the page on a dark preface, and have before them still the long bright volume of life. The girl has her arm linked with the man's, but as they walk she breaks often away from him to dart into copses, to gather flowers, or to peer over the brink where the gulls wheel and oyster-catchers pipe among the shingle. She is no more the tragic muse of the past week, but a laughing child again, full of snatches of song, her eyes bright with expectation. They talk of the new world which lies before them, and her voice is happy. Then her brows contract, and as she flings herself down on a patch of young heather, her air is thoughtful. "'I have been back among fairy tales,' she says. "'I do not quite understand, Alicia. Those gallant little boys! They are youth, and youth is always full of strangeness. Mr. Heritage, he is youth too, and poetry, perhaps, and a soldier's tradition. I think I know him. But what about Dixon? He is the petit bourgeois, the épicier, the class which the world ridicules. He is unbelievable. The others, with good fortune, I might found elsewhere, in Russia, perhaps. But not Dixon.' No, is the answer, you will not find him in Russia. He is what we call the middle class, which we, who were foolish, used to laugh at. But he is the stuff of which, above all others, makes a great people. He will endure when aristocracies crack and proletariats crumble. In our own land we have never known him, but till we create him our land will not be a nation. Half a mile away on the edge of the Laver Glen, Dixon and Heritage are together, Dixon placidly smoking on a tree-stump, and Heritage walking excitedly about and cutting with his stick at the bracken. Sundry bandages and strips of sticking-plaster still adorn the poet, but his clothes have been tidied up by Mrs. Moran, and he has recovered something of his old precision of garb. The eyes of both are fixed on the two figures on the cliff-top. Dixon feels acutely uneasy. It is the first time that he has been alone with Heritage since the arrival of Alexis shivered the poet's dream. He looks to see a tragic grief. To his amazement he beholds something very like exultation. "'The trouble about you, Dogson,' says Heritage, "'is that you're a bit of an anarchist. All you false romantics are. You don't see the extraordinary beauty of the conventions which time has consecrated. You always want novelty, you know, and the novel is usually the ugly and rarely the true.' I am for romance, but upon the old, noble, classic lines. 
Dixon is scarcely listening. His eyes are on the distant lovers, and he longs to say something which will gently and graciously express his sympathy with his friend. "'I'm afraid,' he begins hesitatingly, "'I'm afraid you've had a bad blow, Mr. Heritage. You're taking it awful well, and I'm honour you for it.' The poet flings back his head. "'I'm reconciled,' he says. "'After all, tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. It has been a great experience, and has shown me my own heart. I love her, I shall always love her, but I realise that she was never meant for me. Thank God I've been able to serve her. That is all a moth can ask of a star. I'm a better man for it, Dogson. She will be a glorious memory, and, Lord, what poetry I shall write! I give her up joyfully, for she has found her true mate. Let us not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. The thing's too perfect to grieve about. Look, there is romance incarnate. He points to the figures now silhouetted against the further sea. How does it go, Dogson? he cries. And on her lover's arm she leant. What next? You know the thing. Dixon assists, and Heritage declaims. And on her lover's arm she leant, and round her waist she felt it fold. And far across the hills they went, in that new world which is the old. Across the hills and far away, beyond their utmost purple rim, and deep into the dying day, the happy princess followed him. He repeats the last two lines twice, and draws a deep breath. How right, he cries, how absolutely right! Lord, it's astonishing how that old bird Tennyson got the goods! After that, Dixon leaves him and wanders among the thickets on the edge of the hunting-tower policies above the laver glen. He feels childishly happy, wonderfully young, and at the same time supernaturally wise. Sometimes he thinks the past week has been a dream, till he touches the sticking plaster on his brow, and finds that his left thigh is still a mass of bruises, and that his right leg is woefully stiff. With that the past becomes very real again and he sees the Garpledean in that stormy afternoon. He wrestles again at midnight in the dark house. He stands with quaking heart by the boats to cut off the retreat. He sees it all, but without terror in the recollection, rather with gusto and a modest pride. "'I've surely had a remarkable time,' he tells himself. And then Romance, the goddess whom he has worshipped so long, marries that furious week with the idyllic. He is supremely content, for he knows that in his humble way he has not been found wanting. Once more for him the Chavender or Chubb and long dreams among summer hills. His mind flies to the days ahead of him, when he will go wandering with his pack in many green places. Happy days they will be, the prospect with which he has always charmed his mind. Yes, but they will be different from what he had fancied, for he is another man than the complacent little fellow who set out a week ago on his travels. He has now assurance of himself, assurance of his faith. Romance, he sees, is one and indivisible. Below him, by the edge of the stream, he sees the encampment of the Gorbals' diehards. He calls and waves a hand, and his signal is answered. It seems to be washing day, for some scanty and tattered raiment is drying on the sward. The band is evidently in session, for it is sitting in a circle, deep in talk. As he looks at the ancient tents, the humble equipment, the ring of small shockheads, a great tenderness comes over him. 
The diehards are so tiny, so poor, so pitifully handicapped, and yet so bold in their meagreness. Not one of them has had anything that might be called a chance. Their few years have been spent in kennels and closes, always hungry and hunted, with none to care for them. Their childish ears have been habituated to every coarseness, their small minds filled with the desperate shifts of living. And yet, what a heavenly spark was in them! He had always thought nobly of the soul. Now he wants to get on his knees before the queer greatness of humanity. A figure disengages itself from the group, and Dougal makes his way up the hill towards him. The chieftain is not more reputable in garb than when he, we first saw him, nor is he more cheerful of countenance. He has one arm in a sling made out of his neckerchief, and his scraggy little throat rises bare from his voluminous shirt. All that can be said for him is that he is appreciably cleaner. He comes to a standstill, and salutes with a special formality. "'Dougal,' said Dixon, "'I've been thinking. You're the grandest lot of wee laddies I ever heard tell of, and for by you've saved my life. Now, I'm getting on in years, so you'll admit that I'm not that dead old, and I'm not a poor man, and I haven't chick or child to look after. None of you has ever had a proper chance, or been right-fed, or educated, or taken care of. I've just the one thing to say to you. From now on, you're my bairns, every one of you. You're fine laddies, and I'm going to see that you turn into fine men. There's the stuff in you to make generals and provosts. Aye, and prime ministers, and dar it'll not be my blame if it doesn't get out. Doodle listens gravely, and again salutes. I've brought ye a message, he says. We've just had a meeting, and I have to report that ye've been unanimously elected chief diehard. We're hoping ye'll accept. I accept, Dixon replies, proudly and gratefully. I accept. The last scene is some days later in a certain southern suburb of Glasgow. Ulysses has come back to Ithaca, and is sitting by his fireside, waiting on the return of Penelope from the nuke hydropathic. There is a chill in the air, so a fire is burning in the grate, but the laden tea-table is bright with the first blooms of lilac. Dixon, in a new suit, with a flower in his buttonhole, looks none the worse for his travels, save that there is still sticking plaster on his deeply sunburnt brow. He waits impatiently with his eye on the black marble timepiece, and he fingers something in his pocket. Presently the sound of wheels is heard, and the peahen voice of Tibby announces the arrival of Penelope. Dixon rushes to the door, and at the threshold welcomes his wife with a resounding kiss. He leads her into the parlour, and settles her in her own chair. "'My, but it's nice to be home again,' she says, "'and everything that comfortable. I've had a fine time, but there's no place like your own fireside. You're looking awful well, Dixon. But, Losh, what have you been doing to your head?' "'Or oh, just a small tumble. It's very near mended already. Aye, I've had a grand walking tour.' but the weather was a wee bit thrown. It's nice to see you back again, Mamma. Now that I'm an idle man, you and me must take a lot of jaunts together. She beams on him as she stays herself with Tibby's scones, and when the meal is ended, Dixon draws from his pocket a slim case. The jewels have been restored to Saskia, but this is one of her own which she has bestowed upon Dixon as a parting memento. He opens the case and reveals a necklet of emeralds, any one of which is worth half the street. 
"'This is a present for you,' he says bashfully. Mrs. McCann's eyes open wide. "'You're far too kind,' she gasps. "'It must have cost an awful lot of money.' "'It didn't cost me that much,' is the truthful answer. She fingers the trinket and then clasps it round her neck, where the green depths of the stones glow against the black satin of her bodice. Her eyes are moist as she looks at him. "'You've been a kind man to me,' she says, and she kisses him, as she had not done since Janet's death. She stands up and admires the necklet in the mirror. "'Romance once more,' thinks Dixon. "'That which has graced the slim throats of princesses in faraway courts now adorns an elderly matron in a semi-detached villa. The jewels of the wild Nausicaa have fallen to the housewife Penelope.' Mrs. McCunn preens herself before the glass. "'I call it very genteel,' she says. "'Real stylish. It might be worn by a queen.' "'I wouldn't say but it has,' says Dixon. End of chapter 16 End of Hunting Tower by John Buchan